0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. There is, uh, yes, there's no handout. Sorry about that. Um, I don't do handouts. I do apologize. (laughs) Okay. Okay, good. No handout. No PowerPoint. Um. There are more than 20 ways to spell Wycliffe. So we'll begin there. I spell it W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E. If you want, you can take the F-E off the end. You could just take the E off the end. The Y is variable. It could be an I. It can be a Y. So more than 20 ways. And it's interesting because then Wycliffe's very name becomes an example of the primary issue of Wycliffe's entire life. That issue is an issue of authority. The reason that we have so many alternatives to Wycliffe's name is because there was no definite authority for the English language in the 1300s, it's the 14th century, when John Wycliffe lived. There was no Oxford dictionary that someone could go and look up the spelling of Wycliffe. So it varied from the original, whatever that may have been, And so it changes. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. That was true of most English words in those days. Now, that's not very important. When it comes to the spelling of particular words, hurts some of us more than others, I guess. But it's not a very important thing. We could get by if we had no definitive authority on the spelling of English words. But what would happen if you had no definitive authority on the big and most important crucial questions of life. Questions of life and death, questions of God, who he is, what he wants, of authority, who's in charge of salvation, how to be right with God, of politics. If you had no definitive answers, no authority on any of these things, there would always be variation, but you would have no way of deciding between the alternatives. That is actually what occurred in the days of John Wycliffe and leading up to his life. And really, you could compare it more to this. Imagine if there was a definitive authority, a book that contained all the most important answers to life, things pertaining to this life and the life to come. But the government refused to allow you any access to it, afraid that you would misunderstand, they say. And so the government says, we have the book, we'll read it, We'll let you know what it says in a way you can understand and won't misunderstand. And then generation after generation, as the government says, this is what the book says, this is what the book says, imagine if each generation said something just a little bit different. So that there came to be a contradiction every generation. And what the government was saying, the book said, sounded strangely too convenient to the government that was in power at the time. Too much in their favor. You would live your whole life uncertain about the things you need to be certain about the very most. Things have to do with what happens after this life or with who God is and what he desires from you. And you would always wonder if you were falling prey all your life to a less than honest government. This is the world that John Wycliffe was born into in 1330-ish. But this was not the world that John Wycliffe left behind. Wycliffe's life was one consumed by questions of authority and over time Wycliffe came to see that the greatest, the supreme authority has to be something more stable and certain than government, than a political institution or a religious institution. It had to be the word of God unchanging, once for all, delivered over to us by the prophets and the apostles through Jesus Christ. And this conviction that John Wycliffe had, even though in his own day it was just like embers on the ground in the dirt with the enemies, the world trying to stamp those embers out, those embers still spread, they caught, they glowed, they grew, and eventually they blazed into what we now know as the Reformation. So we want to consider the life of John Wycliffe not because he lived during the Reformation, but because he was the chief, the first, at least that we're going to study, pre-Reformer. And the work that he did led into the Reformation, set the stage for it. I have quite a bit here, so um, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to try to get into the world of John Wycliffe. As with all the Reformers, it's a very different world from our own. So some of the things that we'll discuss might seem unusual and I guess it would be the reverse if you were reading about us. We don't know exactly when John was born. This is a time that precedes the printing press. There's no easy way to keep reliable records. Everything's done by hand. The printing press is going to resurface later and be an incredibly important part of the Reformation. But in the 1300s, the printing press with movable type does not exist, at least not in England. So we don't know when he's born Probably around 1330, John Wycliffe was born in Yorkshire, England, that's the northern part of England. In England, which is, if you know your geography, across the English Channel from the main continent of Europe, where the Reformation, about 150 or so years afterward, will take hold. But Wycliffe is up in England, north of that, and he's born in Yorkshire. The England that Wycliffe was born into had proven to be in the last about five, six hundred years up to this point, one of the greatest examples of loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church. Faithfulness, keeping fast the Roman Catholic doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church, and this is an important preface to the whole class that we're talking about, so I need to insert it here. We talk about England being faithful to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church in the 1300s was not like a church or a denomination in the world today. That church was a political powerhouse. If we trace it back in time to the 4th century, 300s, Constantine was the first Roman emperor, Empire of Rome. He's the head of the Empire of Rome. He's the first one to convert to Christianity up until the time of Constantine in the 300s, Christians had been persecuted by the empire. And suddenly in 313, when Constantine takes over the Roman empire and himself converts, at least outwardly, to Christianity, and then converts the empire over time to Christianity, suddenly the tables are turned. Those who witnessed this, like Eusebius the historian, thought this an act of God. This is an absolute miracle. It's as if the leaders of China today would suddenly become Christian and turn the nation into a Christian nation. So it would be awesome. And it was awesome to those who witnessed it. However, this had long-ranging consequences that probably no one foresaw at the time. Because under Constantine, the church, the spiritual church, God's people, which had been growing from the time of Jesus, was now married... To the political body, to Rome. There was a union of church and state where the two, in the minds of all, became one thing. And over time, really about a thousand years up until the time of Wycliffe, Rome had grown, and when the empire, sorry, the church had grown, and the empire of Rome had not grown, it had actually collapsed a few hundred years after Constantine. And when the Roman Empire collapsed, that threw Europe into chaos. So where would Europe look for stability? The stability that Europe needed was found in the both religious and now political institution of the church, which is also a sort of state. So Europe had been for hundreds of years indebted to this body, the Roman Catholic Church, Roman, see, Roman Catholic Church, to give it a sense of stability The Bishop of Rome had grown in power until he was considered, what we know today, as the Pope. And he was considered the bishop over all the other bishops. And so over the thousand years from 313 Constantine up until the 1300s, John Wycliffe, you have Europe with the Roman Catholic Church enmeshed in every part of European life. The Bishop of Rome, the Pope, growing in power and coming in time to challenge empires and emperors and kings. And really in that thousand years, it was a battle. Because the Roman Catholic Church was itself a political body. Governing over other political bodies. And there was a fight throughout the medieval medieval ages. Who has the authority? Is it the church? And sometimes the church won out. Such as under Gregory the Great. Or is it going to be the more local rulers or the king or even the Uh, ruler of the empire. So that battle was happening all those years. With that came a uh, discovery that could have been discovered a little easier in the Bible itself where Jesus said how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. The church as a political body grew remarkably in its wealth, in its property ownership, in the money, and the revenues that were coming in, just as any government does. And the church then learned the meaning of those words because corruption entered the Roman Catholic Church on a huge scale, especially closer to the time of the 1300s. The church in the end proved much better at politics than at entering the kingdom of God. So this corruption is growing in this huge political powerhouse of the Roman Catholic Church. By the time we reach the 1300s, the church has been able to practice exerting its influence, squashing rebellion or opposition, and getting kings and emperors to do what it wants for about a thousand years. By means of an elaborate sacramental system, it was able to really manipulate others. And side note here, when I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church of medieval times, This does not mean there were not genuine believers within this, what was considered the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. There were. There were many true believers, but there were many, many false believers, and uh, that often happens when the church becomes more a political thing. So the church, especially the hierarchy, the higher-ups, had several ways of enforcing its authority, and one, oddly enough, came out of the sacramental system. The sacramental system, which was centered, there were several sacraments, seven, but we'll talk about the Mass. Mass was an important one. Sacramental system basically was the church saying, We have the keys of the kingdom. We have the ability, well, for God to give you saving grace through us if you follow these seven sacraments, including the Mass, and you'll have grace conferred upon you, and you can store that grace up and hopefully reach salvation. But you see what that did is, throughout medieval Europe, if you didn't have the church, you didn't have a chance at salvation. In fact, that's what the church said Extra ecclesiam nolis salus, in Latin, outside of the church there is no salvation. So everyone depended upon the church for salvation through the sacrament. Additionally, the Bible which originally had been in Greek and Hebrew, in the time of Constantine had been translated into Latin because that was the language of Rome. That's what everybody, or those who could read, I should say, and write. That's what they spoke. That's what they understood. That was the vulgar, so Latin Vulgate. That was the common tongue. But over a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had built certain doctrines upon the Latin version of the Bible so that even when... People were speaking languages throughout the empire that were not Latin. Many people could not understand Latin. The church refused to allow the Latin Bible into the vernacular languages such as English because they realized, it's hard to get into people's heads and say what they thought, but I think they realized that many of their doctrines depended on the Latin. Plus, they needed to keep a clear distinction between the church hierarchy, those on staff and the church, the priests and further up, And the lay people, the rest of us, the common people, there needed to be a clear distinction. The sacramental system did that because only the priests and those above could offer salvation. You can't do that. You don't have the power to achieve salvation the way the priest does. And additionally, only the priests and the hierarchy knew Latin. They were the educated ones. And so they were the ones reading the Bible, albeit in Latin, whereas the common local people could not. So the church said, just trust us, we'll interpret the Bible for you. You can see how the church then created an absolute dependence to maintain its authority. You need us for salvation. You need us if you want to know what God says through the Bible. This is the world that John Wycliffe is born into. Very different from our own. And you have to kind of understand that to understand what's going to happen here in his life. Wycliffe himself probably grew up neither very rich nor peasantly poor, maybe somewhere in the middle, but to be honest with you, we really don't know very much about Wycliffe's early life. So though he's born around 1330, we're going to fast forward and he's going to enter the scene before us in 1350, for it was around that time that he traveled down from Yorkshire in northern England to one of the only two universities in England, Oxford University, this first part of Wycliffe's life we will consider as Wycliffe the student. And it shapes all the rest. So Wycliffe comes down, maybe 1920, maybe younger, because we don't know for sure his age. He comes down to Oxford University, the only other university in England at that time anybody happened to know? Cambridge. Cambridge had broken off from Oxford, they were the competitors, so to speak. So he's at Oxford University in the 1300s. Now, a lot of what I'm about to say that he studied may seem very uninteresting to you. <laughs> but what's really interesting is keep in mind that these subjects, medieval subjects that Wycliffe was immersing himself in, are what God, strangely enough, used to drive Wycliffe to the conclusion that the Bible is our only authority. With, we can all agree with that. It's just interesting the path that he traveled to get there. And the fact that he studied at Oxford is what's going to put him on a platform that allows him to project that. So Oxford University in those days, you would begin by studying the arts, what we might call the humanities. There were seven liberal arts, and they were broken into two parts. The first is the trivium. These are the basic building blocks of everything else. So you had grammar, study of language. But which language would it be? Latin, Latin of course. So he would have studied Latin, probably already knew, already knew it when he came. He'd studied grammar. He'd study logic and may have lectured on logic. That might have been Wycliffe's specialty, we don't know. And he would have studied rhetoric. Then once you had done that, for several years, you would move on to the quadrivium, which is four subjects. They're mathematical subjects that the three lead into. You had arithmetic, music, which was considered a branch of mathematics, astronomy, and geometry. Those were the seven liberal arts. So maybe for seven, eight years, Wycliffe had immersed himself in these subjects. 1360, he graduates as a master of the arts. And for just a few years, he goes and is a priest. We don't know anything about that time, not much. Because then he comes back to Oxford a few years later to continue his education. His studying the Master of Arts was always considered preparatory, either preparing you to be a priest or preparing you to study one of the three highest um, degrees that you could study. Those were law, medicine, or theology. And Wycliffe chose theology. Oxford really was itself, as most things, a branch of the church. The church had given it certain rights and exceptions, and it prepared for the church priests and so forth. Now, it is impossible for us to understand what's going to happen later with Wycliffe without understanding just a little bit of the things that Wycliffe was studying here at Oxford in theology. So I just want to point out, very briefly, two of the professors who were very prominent in Oxford about the time Wycliffe was there. They may have died in the plague just before Wycliffe was there. We don't know timing exactly, but these were two professors, very prominent, and they highlight the two issues that Wycliffe was immersed in at Oxford that will show themselves in the next season of his life. The first professor is John Ockham. Anybody know something that Ockham formulated that we still use in math class today? Occam's razor, sorry, in logic, or I, guess, I don't know if we use that in math or where. Occam's razor, an idea of simplicity and our reasoning. But John Occam did much more than Occam's razor. He was a professor uh, here around the time of Wycliffe. And Occam, I want to talk more about his broader worldview. John Occam was, to simplify the discussion, what we will call a nominalist. There are two terms here nominalist. And the other side of the discussion is realist. What's really important to understand is that Wycliffe did not agree with Ockham. Wycliffe was a realist. In very simple terms, what this means, this was a huge discussion happening in the university at this time, huge. But basically what it means is this. If you are a realist, like John Wycliffe, you believe that the most real things in the world... Are, are these concepts of these ideals that are in the mind of God. So God knows what an ideal... Let's see, Riley just got a dog. So God knows the ideal dog. It's a beagle, obviously. That's the ideal dog, of course. But so God knows the ideal of a dog. When you look around the world and you see the beagle or you see different kinds of dogs in this world, you're always seeing an imperfect... Uh, manifestation or picture of the ideal in God's mind. It never lives up to the ideal. But the reason you can see 10 different dogs that look different and go, oh yeah, that's a dog, that's a dog, because you have this kind of inherent, built-in concept of the ideal that goes all the way back to Plato. But that was uh, one side of the argument. That's what John Wycliffe embraced. Those who were realists, why does that matter? Well, throughout medieval times, most people were realists. And that was important because the effect that had practically is that it tended to make you more heavenly-minded in some good ways and in some bad ways. Because, you see, this world doesn't matter that much. If you go and look at medieval art, go look at uh, paintings, go look at old medieval art, and what do you see? Not very realistic work. Because it didn't matter, see? Because that's not... Those are just imperfect. The real important things are what those symbolize in the mind of God. The other side... Not as important, because that's not what John Wycliffe believed, but the nominalist side was working off of ideas from Aristotle, who is Plato's student, but to keep, make it short, basically they thought the real things themselves, the ten dogs in front of you, were the realest things. And this idea of a concept in God's mind was nonsense. People just made that up. So the real things are the most real things, the things right in front of you. Now the nominalists tended to be better scientists, because they were focused on the actual things. And they tended to be less heavenly minded and more worldly. So that discussion's happening. Now keep that in your mind briefly that John Wycliffe is a realist, because that's what God's going to use to get Wycliffe to some important conclusions. So that was John Ockham, the nominalist. Wycliffe disagrees. A second professor, Thomas Bradwardine, similar was at Oxford, very popular, died in the bubonic plague in 1549, or sorry, 1349. But he was important because he had an emphasis on predestination that had not been seen as clearly and as firmly as he presented it. We're just going to leave that right there, but keep that in mind because that is huge later on when Wycliffe is trying to understand the church. Okay, so this has been preparatory, just like it was for Wycliffe, preparatory for you, to understand a few of the ideas that Wycliffe is spending every day of his life immersed in, trying to understand. See, God calls some people to physical labor as their vocation. And the Reformation is going to emphasize, if you're called mainly to hands-on physical work, then your work is no less important than the work of anyone else. You do it to God's glory. God calls others to work mainly with their minds. Similarly, they ought to work for the glory of God. We're all part of the body. It's all important. John Wycliffe was called to think. And so these are the thoughts that he's thinking about, which leads us now from Wycliffe the student into Wycliffe the doctor. Not a medical doctor, a doctor of philosophy. 1372, so he's been studying for almost my lifetime. And he is now a doctor of theology at Oxford University in England. Let's see what purpose God had for all the preparations in his life to this point. So as a doctor of theology, Wycliffe is continuing to teach, which he was already doing, but he's no longer a student. It is especially at this point in his life that the great chief theme of his whole existence shows itself. And that theme is authority. Because not very long after becoming a doctor of theology, Wycliffe is thrown, not into theology primarily, he's thrown into politics. It's interesting how God uses this. So Wycliffe was already good friends with some higher-ups in England. For example, his closest patron and friend, among the higher-ups in England. so a man named John of Gaunt. He was Duke of Lancaster. He had blood connections with royalty in England. He was an incredibly powerful man. And for reasons we have no idea of, he had a close affection to John Wycliffe. Uh, some say Wycliffe was able to make friends well. Seems like that's what happened. So here's this powerful political figure, less interest in theology, more in the politics of England and keeping power. But he's drawn to John Wycliffe Maybe because of that connection or for other reasons, Wycliffe is thrown into politics as a doctor of theology because there is a burning question among the nobility in England and they need a doctor of theology, among others, to help them know the answer. Here was the question. England had long paid a yearly tax to the Pope, going back about 100 or so years. They had stopped doing so for a little while because they were in a war with France. That war was ended. So now, they were trying to know, can we keep the money we've been paying as a tax to Rome? Rome has sent a delegation to get the money. But we would like to keep it for our own national defense. And when we look at the church, it's so corrupt. Do we need to send our money, a big chunk of it, to the church? Now, in the context... The church already owned one-third of all the property in England. The church already had several avenues of taxation. Anytime a new priest is appointed, there's a, a tax that goes. So many things were already going to Rome. Then you had two orders of mendicant monks who were now not just staying in a monastery, they were traveling around and they were beggars and they were begging for money to support their lifestyle and so... A lot of the monasteries had become very wealthy, including these two, which were dedicated to poverty, but they had, as an institution, become very rich. So the nobility is struggling because they don't want to give the tax. Obviously, they want to keep their money. Who wants to pay taxes if you don't have to? And now it's a corrupt church, and so they have this question, you know, should we be paying this tax anyway? So they ask Wycliffe, among others. It's interesting how God uses this to get Wycliffe into thinking about authority. Wycliffe goes to the scriptures and he's thinking about this issue, and he comes to the conclusion the king has more authority here than the pope, so we don't have to pay this tax. He looked in the Bible, Romans chapter 13 says the king has authority. But as he searched the scriptures, he came to a very dangerous conclusion for a doctor of theology in those days. He said, I don't see the Pope anywhere in the Bible. (laughs) So Wycliffe, not reticent about it, he publishes a book and says so. Then he publishes another book even more strongly against the church. Now this is where predestination comes into play. Remember Bradwardine? So Wycliffe is wrestling with this question of authority. And one of the things that the church had used to defend itself for many years said, yes, there's a lot of corruption here. That's true. But all the way back to Augustine, Augustine argued, remember Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares? Where the man goes out to sow, an enemy sows as well. So the wheat grows up and there's all these weeds. And the man and the servants come and they say, do you want us to get rid of the weeds? He says, no, leave them or you'll mess up the wheat. And at the end, we'll come and we'll take them all and separate them. Augustine had interpreted that to mean, because Augustine is after 313, it's a political body as the church, he said, well, see, that explains why when you look at the church, Roman Catholic Church, there's a lot of corruption. There's some good, sincere stuff, and then there's a lot of corruption, but you can't change that. Because it's the wheat growing up with the tares. This is the church. And as long as you follow the sacraments and do all of that stuff, even if you're not quite living up to the stand, that's okay. We're all in this together. But you see, when you start to think about predestination in the way Bradwardine was thinking, and in the way that Wycliffe began to think, he said, wait a second. If God really has a people that he has chosen, Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world... And if Jesus came to redeem that particular people, then in God's mind, there is a specific set of people who are the church. It's not this institution. It's not this political body. He rejects Augustine's theory, and he says, no, the actual church is this invisible church. It's those predestined unto salvation who truly respond to the gospel. Now, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, why this is important, the Roman Catholic Church had argued the reason we have authority over kings is because we are in a state of grace. Therefore, God gives to us as the church in a state of grace, spiritual authority and dominion. Then we, in turn, can pass that on in a lesser form, of course, to kings and nobles. So we have the chief authority. Very convenient argument. But then Wycliffe thought about that and said, well, what happens if you're not in a state of grace? What happens if you're in a state of corruption and you've fallen from grace and you're not a part as the institutional body, the Pope? What if the Pope is not in a state of grace, is not part of the predestined, which is what had happened in his day? So in that second book, Wycliffe, very dangerously now, argues that the church, not only the Pope, is dismissed as non-biblical, but the church itself does not have authority greater than the king. You can see that although Wycliffe is dealing with politics on the one hand, this is also a question of theology. This is what God's using to get him to think about authority. Now, of course, the Pope was not happy about this. And in 1377, sent off three papal bulls saying you need to recant and just for good measure sent two more after him. So there's five papal bulls coming after Wycliffe saying recant or you will be excommunicated. He sends them also to Oxford, to the head of Oxford, says you need to pluck up these I mean this is terrible what's happening in your university. Amazingly, Oxford, I guess far enough geographically from Rome, was willing to defend Wycliffe and said we've searched his teachings and find nothing heretical, although you know he said things maybe not as good as he could say them. But it was now at this point that the most important conclusion of Wycliffe's whole life occurs. So just follow with me his his trail of thought. He has already thought, the Pope is not in the Bible, so why is he lording it over us? And then he's moved on from that and he's thought, the church is not in a state of grace and is not a part of the predestined, it's this institution, so it has no authority as an institution over us. But then the question naturally arises, if you're gonna get rid of the Pope as and the church and its teaching office as the authority to tell you this is what the Bible says, this is what you should do, this is how you should live, this is salvation, then who becomes your authority on earth? Who is going to tell you if there should be an F E at the end of Wycliffe or just an E? Or none of those? Or the Y should be an I. Who's going to be the touchstone? How are we going to know what's true and how to live and what to do and what to think? And Wycliffe in his third major book answers that in the title of this book which is On the Truth of Holy Scripture. He had already been arguing for the authority of Scripture somewhat but this is the over 1,000 page pinnacle of his argument. And in this book he argues that Not the only authority, he was still wrestling with things, but the supreme authority in our spiritual lives is the Word of God, unchanging. It's not popes, it's not councils, it's not the institution of the church with its mixed bag of corruption and good. It is the Word of God. The conclusion he draws from that in his book is, if this is the authority, then the common people need to be able to read the Bible you and I believe that. Most people believe that today. In the 1300s, that was absurd. That was not thought of. You don't think of that. That's not a possibility. But that was his argument. Therefore, the Bible needs to be in English. The Bible needs to be in the local language. People need to read it for themselves because Wycliffe realized and argued if they don't have access to the scriptures, then when the institution of the church becomes corrupt as it is now... They will never be able to get out from under its tyranny because they will never know the corruption because they won't know the truth. So Wycliffe is one of the very first, not the first, but one of the first to make that argument. Here is the pinnacle of Wycliffe's career, 1377. He's most popular in Oxford and the world at this point. He's well respected even though he's treading on dangerous ground. And then something happens the next year in 1378 that not even Wycliffe was prepared for. And that is in 1378, the institutional church no longer had a pope. The institutional church had two popes. This is called the Great Schism. The cardinals who were in charge of selecting a pope had picked an Italian pope, then changed their mind and picked a French pope. And they went with the French pope back to France. Now there were two popes, one in, down in Rome and one in France. Both of them excommunicated each other and said, I'm the true pope. But you see, the problem in Europe is if you are holding fast to the Roman Catholic Church and the pope was the sole interpreter of the scriptures and the one head on earth of Christ here, what do you do when there are two really official uh, popes? And now you as an individual, not really, as a nation, you as a nation, you have to choose between these two ultimate authorities. But you see, ultimate authority by its nature cannot be plural. This, in God's good providence, is one of the major things, this great schism, that prepares Europe for the arguments of the Reformation. But even in Wycliffe's day, it was in 1378, he witnesses this, you know, even up to 78 with the arguments that Wycliffe's making. He's still a Catholic priest and scholar. He's still somewhat in the church even though he's making these strong arguments against it. But in 1378, something clicks. And whatever restraint Wycliffe may have had up to this point is gone. What happened with the papal schism reinforced, reinforced Reinforced, sorry, what he was already thinking about authority. Which is important because it's at this point that Wycliffe, now freed from restraint, goes where almost no one had dared to go up to that point. Now that he is tethered to the scriptures and not to the church itself, he's reading the scriptures and he comes to one final bastion of manipulation in the church. That no one is willing to reach out and touch because of its importance. But Wycliffe, reading the scriptures, realizes this is just manipulation. This is not biblical. And he reaches out and he touches the mass. Now, interestingly, there are many who look back on Wycliffe and they see the way that so many political rulers in England really used Wycliffe to support their own authority. You have a John of Gaunt and others who really like Wycliffe at Oxford because, you know, if the church is not really having all that authority, well, I guess we need to close the monasteries and I guess we'll take those (laughs) along with all the money and all the property. So there were many political rulers in England who liked Wycliffe for political reasons. So it would be easy to see Wycliffe as just an opportunist. You know, he's just riding on that wave of popularity. But then when you come to 78 and this argument, you realize that's not true. Wycliffe is dead earnest, no matter who may be using him politically or not. Because if he was interested in keeping popularity, this is something he should never have done. This one attack on the mass is going to alienate his friends. It's going to demonize him, not only with his enemies he already had, but with others who were his friends before. This is kind of the final straw. Now Wycliffe, in thinking about the mass... What led him to renounce the Mass first was perhaps not the Scriptures. That was a part of it. But this is what's so interesting in God's providence. The first thing that led him to renounce the Mass was that he was not a nominalist. And he didn't like nominalists. And the, the church's theory about transubstantiation, that the priest, when he takes the wafer and he lifts it up, The priest, you can't do this, but the priest can. He himself, some said, creates God there because he lifts it up and that bread turns into the literal, actual, physical body of Jesus. It's no longer bread. And if you say, well, it looks like bread, still tastes like bread, they would say, well, we can explain it using a nominalist idea. Because Aristotle, underneath nominalism, had argued that things have a substance and they have accidents. Forget all of that, except that they taught the details of the bread could taste like bread, look like bread, smell like bread. But in its substance, it's actually the body of Jesus. And Wycliffe, a realist, said, no, that's, that can't be true. That's absurd. Not even Aristotle would have thought that, but that's how the church had come to defend that. That was important because if you have priests who can make Jesus like that, well then you'll think as a common person wow we need them but when Wycliffe reaches out and says no actually that's not what's happening now he's breaking down the pillars of the church's authority in a very tangible day to day way in the experience of many people the church wanted itself to be necessary for truth for salvation and Wycliffe is shaking the foundations so he rejects it because he's realist not nominalist he rejects it Secondly, because it's just not in the Bible. And it's really not. It's not in the Bible. It was a nominalist idea. So this move, together with a peasant's uprising that happens in 1381, which is tied to Wycliffe, even though he wasn't directly involved, but it's tied to him. Those two things are the beginning of the end for John Wycliffe at Oxford University. And so... Eventually, he is, shortly thereafter, cut off from his beloved university. The university had defended him, but it was no longer willing to do so. The enemies were not just out in Rome fighting against him, but now were in the university itself. He had gone too far, and therefore, seeing the writing on the wall, he left, certainly with a great deal of sadness, the university he loved, and he went to Lutterworth in Leicestershire in England which was a parish he had charge over as a priest, as a rector, and he went there to live out the final years of his life. That brings us now to the end of his life. He has done his most activity there as the doctor of theology at Oxford. These final four years, three or four years, 1381 to 1384, of Wycliffe's life. Um, Wycliffe as a sort of exile in one sense, he's still in England, they're sad years on the one hand. If you look at Wycliffe's writings at this time, with an honest eye, he's a, he's a bitter man. He's very bitter. And he lashes out pretty strongly at his enemies, political enemies, enemies at Oxford, and uh, the, the church, obviously. It's very bitter. One biographer said that, you know, these are the musings of a of disappointed old age. And that may be True. Usually the portrayal at this point is that Wycliffe, impassioned, went to Letterworth, said, I'm going to make sure to translate the Bible into English and send out preachers two by two to take it. Now, those were two things that resulted from Wycliffe and his ideas. The historical evidence as to how closely connected he was in those matters, we don't know. But from reading his actual works, you see there is a bitterness there. there was a, he had a stroke two years into his sort of exile partially paralyzed him, and then two years after that, 1384, has another stroke, and he dies. We wonder because we can't get into his head. We wish we could. Sometimes when we read the Heroes of the Reformation, it's easy for us to see it almost like a Hollywood movie, where, you know, the cue the really intense music, and now here goes Wycliffe, and he's ready to make war. But Our lives, just like their lives, are not as cinematic as that. There's disappointment. You know, he may have thought after he had left Oxford that the labor of his whole life, studies, the arguments he had made, the books he had written, the people he had influenced, was for nothing. Because Oxford, very quickly after he left, kicked everyone out of the university who had any sympathy with Wycliffe or his teachings and then a synod and the Bishop of London presided over a synod a few years later during Wycliffe's life that condemned his works. His works were anathema. You were not allowed to touch them. He may well have thought that this is the result of all his labors and all his work, nothing. But what actually happened, whether through his direct involvement or just as a consequence of his thought, he dies there in 1384 in Lutterworth and two things happen. One is, drawing on his ideas, the Bible is translated for the first time in its entirety into English so that the common people can read it, which was Wycliffe's desire. Secondly, groups of country priests. Taken up by Wycliffe's fiery ideas, even though squelched in the university, these country priests take it up, some former students, and they go out into the countryside throughout England, taking Wycliffe's ideas of the authority of Scripture, possessing handwritten copies of portions of the Scriptures. And for the first time, for many of these people they're encountering, the people in England are hearing the Bible in its own words, in their own language. An incredible thing. Many years after Wycliffe's death, the church is not done with him. Actually, the Pope had summoned him around 1384. And to paraphrase, he said, well, you're summoning me, but God's summoning me too. (laughs) So I'm going to go to God, and he dies. But years after he had died at the Council of Constance, the church condemns Wycliffe officially, more thoroughly, has his bones dug up and burnt, Which, if you're going to be burnt, that's the way to do it, I guess. I don't think he cared. But they burnt his bones, threw it into the river, so no one would make a relic or whatever out of it. But one of his biographers very famously said, you know, when they took the ashes of his bones, they threw them into the nearby river. And that river led down, carried his ashes down into the English Channel and down out into the whole ocean. And in the same way, here, this man who, though burnt at the end... Yet his ideas about the authority of Scripture were just like the ashes carried down out from England into the whole world, influencing a man named John Huss that we'll see next week, but also setting the way for the Reformation. Here was the first sort of dot of light in the sky, this morning star of the Reformation, preparing the way for people to look to the Scriptures to know God. The Word of God was being sent out, and as we know from experience and from Scripture, When God's word goes forth, it never returns empty without accomplishing what God intends. So, mm, okay, technically we don't have time, but I'm going to make there be time because it's not service yet. (laughs) If anyone has any questions, I do want to address those very briefly and then we'll be be done. Uh, The papal schism. So what ends up happening with the papal schism, so 1378, um, the Council of Pisa I'm not sure if that's in the eighties or the nineties, probably in the eighties. So you have these two popes for a time. And then the Council of Pisa is an attempt by the church to figure this out. Can't keep doing this. Council of Pisa as a council decides these guys aren't Pope and they pick someone else, say this guy's the pope. Well, the problem is, these guys are like, forget you, we're still the Pope. Now, this guy's like, forget them, I'm the Pope. There really was three Popes. That was, that was about the worst that it got. Um, yes. So, eventually, I'm um, trying to think when specifically the end of this was. I don't know that it was the Council of Constance, which is 415, uh, 14 to 15. It may have been that late. I can't recall if that was the end of it. Eventually, what happens is the Council does come. And yeah, it was the Council of Constance, 414,15. Eventually, they managed to get all three guys to give it up, and they pick somebody else. One of the guys still is fighting, but he loses, so. Yeah, that was in Rome. Constance, uh, actually, that may be in Germany. I'm not totally familiar. Yes, sorry. Sorry, I mixed that up. 14, 14, 14, 15. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It makes a difference. 100 years. Yes, 14, 14 15. I mean, if you're the Pope, you're the Pope. You call the shots. That's how they felt, so stuff. Any other questions before we finish here? Rick? That's a great point. Um, I haven't talked uh, he, he mentions the Waldensians and their influence on this movement that's a great point I haven't mentioned the Waldensians there are several pre-reformation reformation type movements and persons that we're not going to discuss unfortunately and that's one of them Peter Waldo was I believe French and this was several hundred years before and um, there's question as to exactly what he taught or his connection to the Waldensians but they claim to be followers of Waldo and they were sort of pre-Reformation, Reformation Reformation types, and they were probably connected in with the Wycliffeites in some way. That's a great point. Last question, if we have one before we're done. Buddy, nobody? Okay, good. Well, let me pray for us, and we will be finished. Lord, thank you for this time. I thank you very much for John Wycliffe and his courage to be willing to lose Oxford that he loved and to be willing to suffer ignominy, to have even close friends betray him and turn against him for the sake of the truth, his willingness to be kicked out and marginalized and hated for the sake of truth. I pray that you give us that same courage and that we would value our Bibles in our language, that we would treasure these, that many men have worked very hard to ensure that we could have.